Time for the Friday edition of Hancock and Kelly. You two belong together. John Hancock, Michael Kelly on News Radio 1120, KMOX. Happy Friday, St. Louis. It's Hancock and Kelly in for our regular Friday gig. We'll take you all the way to 11 o'clock. We'll join you on Sunday morning at 8.30 on Fox 2. Uh, actually, we're taking the Sunday off this week, aren't we, John? We're off this week, but enough of that. Uh, I want to hear about your your trip, man. Buddy, I went to I went to Las Vegas to the Sphere. Are you familiar with the Sphere? The Sphere it's the, the round giant, thing. big... Yeah, globe-like building that's been built right off of the strip. Ironically, uh, shaped like a sphere. Shaped like a strip sphere. Holds 18,000 people for a concert. All right. And uh, the first concert that's uh, a residency, I guess you could say, uh, is three months, 22-plus shows from U2. It's a good gig. Uh, yeah, right? And so I went down there uh, Wednesday and saw U2 perform. It was an incredible concert. It is an overwhelming space at the same time. Uh, it is uh, an intimate space, if that makes sense. Um, the the sound, the screens, the it's an experience unlike anything I've ever uh, wow. taken in. I will tell you, John Hancock, I do not believe this will be the last sphere that is built. Uh, that was such an, a unique experience. I could see them being built all over the world. What did that thing cost? Two billion? Two billion? It? Yeah. Wow. And I could see uh, folks from various different genres uh, performing there. Uh, at the end of the nine o'clock hour, I'll spend a little bit of time explaining uh, exactly what we saw. But it was. It was really special. Boy, I hadn't been to uh, Las Vegas in 10 years. Is that right? Talk about a place that just uh, is in a perpetual state of destruction and construction. Yeah. Uh, They are in the process of building for the big F1 race that's going to be taking place there in five weeks. Wow. It is spectacular. I mean, it's it's taking in the entire strip. Um, Since the last time I was in Las Vegas, maybe five or six years ago, there's been three new resorts built. Uh, the Fountain Blue, a Resorts World, um, and um, some other place that I'd never uh, that I didn't even get to go into. But I mean, John, there there's eight thousand hotel rooms at the Venetian alone. That's more hotel rooms than we have in all of downtown St. Louis. Well, it, it's it's such a remarkable place, and they've done. I mean, really, out of nothing, uh, they've built this mecca of entertainment, gambling. Uh, in any manner of things. And I remember in the early days where first it was Atlantic City, and then all of a sudden casinos start popping up all over the country. Right. And there were some who speculated that Las Vegas is going to really take a hit from this because (laughs) people can go gamble, you know, but nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, as people galore, um, everything's expensive. Um, You know, the old movies that tell you 79-cent steak dinners and... That does not exist in Las Vegas anymore. Mm. Uh, everything was quite expensive. What are you paying for dinner out there? Uh, you know, uh, a couple it, hundred bucks a person at least. Yeah, wow. There, it was uh, far from affordable. And what was incredible to me was the amount of people that were there. Uh, I mean, it was just packed. I mean, I was there on a Tuesday and Wednesday. Yeah. Every restaurant we went to had waiting lines. And, you know, every one of these resorts has got some of the greatest, biggest names from Bobby Flay to Gordon Ramsay to Wolfgang Puck to, uh, hell, the Kardashians even had places there. The Kardashians have a restaurant. 
It was and everything was packed. Nothing was cheap. Um, you know, I'm single. Uh, when a bill comes, I I don't often get uh, spooked. Uh, there was not a bill that came in down in Las Vegas that I didn't look at it and think, man, this place is expensive. It is expensive. I mean, every drink started at about 15, 18 bucks. Oh. Like going to a Cardinal game 24-7. Wow. Uh, steaks and, and seafood, uh, the, the, the every one of the menu items was started about $60. Jeez. Yeah, it was expensive. But I had such an incredible experience. Can't wait to tell you about it a little bit later in the show. Well, that'll be exciting. We've got a lot coming up when we return. Uh, we're going to be joined by Congresswoman Nikki Budzinski from Next Door in Springfield, Illinois. She's a Democrat, uh, and she's... Uh, Party to all of the fun and fascinating frivolity going on in our nation's capital. Uh, she's going to join us. Colonel Jeff McCausland next hour. We're going to get an update on what's happening on the ground in Israel and also Ukraine. Connect with KMOX on air, online, 1120 AM, 98.7 FM, KMOX.com. It is Friday the 13th here in St. Louis and on KMOX. We're going to go quickly to the Quiver River Electric guest line where we're joined by Congresswoman. No, we're not joined yet by Congresswoman. Why not? Well, she's not called in yet. We haven't heard from her. She's very busy, Michael. Well, you, what, 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 are you, what do you mean? She's busy. <laughs> was she up there trying to figure out? Well, she'd be the, we're, we're going to talk to Nikki Budzinski. She's the Congresswoman from Springfield, Illinois, her district reaches somewhat down into the southern part of the state and obviously inside of the listening audience here at KMOX. We're going to check in with her just about the nuttiness that is Congress these days, John. She's a fairly new congresswoman from uh, central Illinois, a Democrat. Uh, she goes in at a time when uh, that we've got the Ukraine war, now the Israeli war, uh, uh, no speaker of the House, Um and uh, just dysfunction running rampant through uh, not only our government, but specifically the Republican Party. It's a uh, unprecedented time. You know, we've not seen this happen before in our nation's history. And, uh, you know, I don't see any, you know, as we just discussed with Debbie and Scott, I, I don't see any short-term solution here that's workable. And... Uh, so I don't know. I mean, it's it's either going to be, you know, I did make a prediction two weeks ago. Do you recall that? I think you said something about Ellie Stefanik or. Yeah, I said, so Jordan and Scalise had announced. And I said, I don't think either one of them is going to get to 217. And what I think is going to happen is that they're going to try and that's not going to work. And then they're going to turn to somebody that's not running and basically draft them and and get the put the votes together for that person and I thought the most likely person uh to have that occur was uh Elise Stefanik she's a conference chair uh it hasn't happened yet I haven't seen it speculated anywhere else but that was my prediction 2 weeks ago and do, do you uh, think there's some growing frustration inside the Republican oh, yeah. party I mean we've saw we've seen it uh a little bit with Ann Wagner speaking out uh about Jim Jordan and about the dysfunction do you think she's a minority, or do you think their vast majority of uh, congressmen on the GOP side find themselves in the same spot Ann Wagner does, disgusted? I think that's right, and I think most of them see this as uh, this is not how the institution is supposed to work. It's not how the political parties are supposed to work. And those members of Congress that are there to 
help the country and to pass laws and, and pass appropriations bills, which is the majority of them, the vast majority of them. They are very frustrated because the people that are holding this up are relatively few in number, uh, aided by rules that really don't make a lot of sense, and uh, have chosen to just kind of shut down everything, and, and really they don't care at the end of the day, those half a dozen, ten uh, folks. And, you know, there's a half a dozen, ten folks on the extreme in both of those conferences, Democrat and Republican. Are there half a dozen, ten of those moderate Republicans who might want to go work with the Democrats? Oh, I think there could potentially be more than that. Um, that's going to be a question of what the Democrats want. Uh, but And that's, I think, as, we, as we're looking at this today, reading tea leaves, the most likely scenario is that there's going to be uh, the folks in the Republican conference who want to govern uh, are going to sit down with Democrats and they're going to figure it out. That's what I think may happen, but who knows? I'll, let's talk to somebody who's actually there. Congresswoman Nikki Budzinski, she's from the 13th District in Illinois, uh, lives in Springfield, the capital of that great state, to our east. Congresswoman Budzinski, welcome to KMOX. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Congresswoman, you find yourself uh, in a situation where the world's at war in two different locations. Um, government seems to be off the tracks. We don't even have a Speaker of the House. Uh, how's it feel to be a part of one of the most disorganized governments we've seen in quite some time? And to say it, it's incredibly frustrating is an understatement. Um, you know, you really hit the nail on the head there. We are dealing with two different uh, wars right now. Um, Ukraine, obviously, we have been dealing with and providing support to. But, you know, the recent attacks in Israel have just been horrific that started last weekend um, by the terrorist organization of Hamas. And, you know, I have, along with a number of my colleagues, overwhelming support signed on to two different resolutions out of the House of Representatives. One, just restating our support for Israel as an ally and a partner. The second resolution is just condemning the attacks by Hamas and Hamas as a terrorist organization. We can't even pass these overwhelmingly bipartisan resolutions to take, to state that support um, because we don't have a Speaker of the House. Um, are, are, it is really frustrating. Are you all able to receive briefings? Have you received briefings uh, from the, the Defense Department or the State Department about what's going on? We did. I was able to participate in a classified uh, briefing that was bipartisan. Of course, I can't share the details of that, but we have been continuing to get updates on the situation. And just as all of us are watching in the news every day, more heartbreak um, in the situation and, and obviously wanting to um, you know, make sure as, you know, we are providing to Israel any of the aid that they are requesting and that they need, um, which is critically important, and that this does not expand beyond the borders. Um, and so, yeah, continuing to follow this, I had a couple of different constituents that obviously we were helping to get out of Israel as well. That was my priority this week. And they are safely leaving Israel. So that's some good news. But, um, it's it's really heartbreaking. Congresswoman, you express, uh, I think, where most of Americans are in support of our close ally of Israel. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, right here in St. Louis, we have Congressman Cory Bush, uh, who's 
almost taken the side of the Palestinians. Well, let me tell you what uh, she the, let me tell you what she right, said. John, she said ahead. as part of achieving a just and lasting peace, we must do our part to stop this violence and trauma by ending U.S. government support for Israel military occupation and apartheid. She also called for a ceasefire after the Hamas attacks. So, what, with what do you what say you and what's going on? Yeah, so I would just say, even before these horrific attacks that happened on Saturday, I have been a very consistent supporter of things like the Iron Dome funding, which is one of the most important defense uh, mechanisms that the state of Israel has, and they are currently using today to prevent um, incoming rocket fire. Um, and so, you know, I have always consistently been very supportive of Israel and making sure that they have the aid that they need. Um, I've also been supportive of humanitarian aid to Palestinians. I mean, I think that this region is, it is very complicated, obviously, um, and what obviously is front of mind for all of us is we don't want to see any civilian death. But what happened on Saturday was a terrorist attack on the state of Israel. And as one of our longest standing partners, certainly not just in the region, but in the world, um, now is the time for the United States to lean in and continue to be supporting and continuing to make sure that they have all that they need. Congresswoman Nikki Budzinski is our guest, Illinois District 13, a member of Congress. The, the scale and coordination of that terrorist attack over the weekend and the, this, the sheer numbers of people had to have been planned in good, great detail. There had to be training that took place. Mm -hmm. uh, on the ground training. How did both the Israeli and U.S. intelligence communities, both of whom are, you know, considered to be the best in the world, how did we miss this? Yeah, I mean, it is shocking. And I would say, I think it's fair to say everyone was surprised by this. Um, um, and so I think what we need to make sure is moving forward um, that we are ever vigilant in um, making sure we're investing in our intelligence, um, our human intelligence on the ground, our, you know, diplo uh, diplomacy is incredibly important. I know the United States leading up to just before these attacks was making really great progress with Saudi Arabia and normalizing some relations with Israel. Um, so I think we need to be continuing to um, strengthen our relationships with our allies so that we can pick up these types of intelligence and continue to invest in our intelligence community. But clearly this came as a surprise to everyone and, and we need to do better. Um, Congresswoman, not only do we have this Israeli situation, but we have the ongoing conflict in Ukraine after the uh, invasion from the Russians. Uh, any status update, any change? Do you still have hope that uh, Ukraine will be able to drive Russia from its borders? I do. I do have faith that the Ukrainians are going to defeat um, this, you know, Russians, uh, Russia's aggression. Um, but I think that they are also in need of our continued support to be able to do that. Um, one of the things, obviously, as you know, we passed a short-term budget, um, not budget, but agreement to keep the government running. Unfortunately, there was a part of that that some of us, obviously, Democrats, and I think some Republicans as well, were helping, hoping for some short-term continued aid to Ukraine. That was not in there. So making sure that we get a budget which actually comes to a head. We need to get this done by the middle of November or we're back in the situation where we're talking about a potential government shutdown. 
I want to see and make sure that there is continued Ukrainian aid as a part of that, um, a, a part of that budget that we need to get to by mid-November. Um, and so we, you know, the, what is happening in Ukraine and what is happening in Israel are really challenges to democracy. Um, and so we need to stand with our partners. That requires us to provide support. Um, and so that's what I'll be advocating for in Congress. Yeah, you mentioned the looming um, shutdown again in in less than a month now, and you know there's three ways to, that this thing could go. You could you could pass the appropriations bills, get them over to the Senate, get them resolved and signed into law. I think that's highly unlikely at this stage. We don't even have a House Speaker. Mm-hmm. You could pass another continuing resolution to buy some more time, or you could cease funding the government. It, it, as you look at things right now, is one of those more likely than the others? Well, I think you did a great job of outlining the different options. I think that it is crippling, um, to say the least, to not have leadership in the House of Representatives right now to help us determine what is our next step. Do we need another short-term continuing resolution to just keep the government functioning while we continue to have these budget conversations? Um, I think that the Senate is coming back into session next week. And so if the House Republicans can't get their act together, then hopefully the Senate will pass over to the House um, a budget that we can get to. But we won't be able to vote on even that if we don't have a speaker. Yeah, it's uh, Um, it's a very big problem. It needs to be resolved. She's Congresswoman Nikki Budzinski. She's from Springfield, Illinois. Kind enough to take some time to visit with us here on KMOX. Congresswoman, have a great weekend and uh, keep up the good work in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. When Hancock and Kelly come back, we start our hour together. We're going to find out, is there even a GOP left after this on KMOX? Time for the Friday edition of Hancock and Kelly. You two belong together. John Hancock, Michael Kelly on News Radio 1120, KMOX. It's Friday the 13th. You don't believe in any of that stuff, do you? I don't. Yeah, me neither. Makes uh, makes no sense to me, and uh, it's a day like any other. What about, like, black cats that walk in front of you? You know, people get spooked by that kind of stuff. Or... I don't like cats. I don't like cats either. Who wants a cat? Yeah, cats don't, you got even, a cat, they don't even want to be pet. No, James doesn't have a cat. It's do like you, they don't even want attention. Have you ever had a cat? I, oh, gosh, no. Yeah, me either. Uh-uh. I don't get them. No. I, I, cat owners are, are really big into cats. But they are. They're dogs, a lot I mean, of cat people out Dogs there. are just lovers, right? They just want a little love, a little attention. Not my bag, but I get it. Uh, but cats, they don't even want attention. There's they nothing, just want to be left alone. That's right. There's nothing like coming home to a dog, you know? Yeah. I mean, nobody in the world may want to see you, but your dog always does. Isn't that true? It's a wonderful thing. Gus greeting me at the door. There's a little tag wagging. He'll pick up his shoe and have it bring me a shoe in his mouth and uh, wag his little tail and, and then, kind of cry then, under his breath while he's got his shoe in his mouth. Take the shoe back to where it came from? or do you Yeah. Just kinda, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's shoes everywhere because, I mean, if you're gone five minutes. Doug gets on. Our, uh, you, he thinks you've been gone like a week. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah. Hey, he's, buddy, a, he's a great dog. What's going on inside the Republican Party, John? I mean, obviously, the I, I get there's this. Uh, there was definitely some animosity and dislike for uh, Speaker McCarthy. You have Jim Jordan, who, from my perspective, is just a bad dude. 
Uh, Steve Calise, who's, uh, you know, uh, I guess kind of what would be considered a mainstream Republican these days, he gets bounced yesterday. What's what's going on, man? Well, you've got uh, enough disruptors in that conference to do exactly what they've done, and it's shut down the institution. And this is not the way political parties are supposed to behave. You know, and I, I do question whether or not the Republican Party is a functioning entity anymore. Wow. Uh, because the and the rules were whoever got the most votes, the the caucus was going to march out on the floor and vote for them. That was the that was the prearranged deal that was struck in their meeting. Steve Scalise got the most votes and he couldn't get to 217. And that's just that is a fundamental breakdown of the way the system works. And you've got these folks that are disruptors in that conference, and there's, you know, a handful of them, but they, they Is matter. Is it just a handful, though, John? Well, it's, it's it, 8, 10. Yeah. I mean, what the, percentage of your party do you think identifies, or whatever the Republican Party is, identifies with those 8 to 10? Well, that's, that's really the interesting question, right? Because um, as we discussed, I don't know, a week or so ago, the folks who... Are, are identifying as Republicans today are different uh, demographically than folks that identified as Republicans, say, 20 years ago. And the Republican electorate now is um, comprised more so of folks that uh, have a high school education, uh, blue-collar working uh, family uh, type of situation. And... Um, so it's a it's a different electorate. So if you ask the question, you know, what percentage of Republicans identifiers, I, I don't know. I don't okay. know the answer to that. But it's it's larger than you would think. And you know, we've always had a disruptive element. And and I can't speak to the Democrats because I haven't been involved. But I've been involved in Republican politics for forty years. Um, you know, so I do have some experience here. And we've always had disruptors. I mean, we had a situation um, in 2016 when we were having our caucuses where folks would come into these caucuses, the presidential nominating caucuses, and they would take them over and uh, throw the rooms into chaos. And one of them, I think it was in St. Charles County, we had to have a do-over because the the rules and processes had been so uh, butchered. And, you know, so that element has been there for a long time in the party, but it never was predominant. And I don't think it's predominant today, but it's significant enough when you've got a four-seat majority in the Republican conference, it's significant enough to, to create exactly what we have here. And this is not the way political parties are designed to operate. And, you know, a lot of people may like it this way, but I don't, and I don't think it's helpful for the country. It's certainly no good for the party, and the party is less significant than the country by an order of magnitude. But uh, it's not good for the country that we can't have a a functioning House of Representatives. We likely face three, one of three outcomes. Maybe there's more. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on that, John. If uh, outcome number one would be... The Republicans finally get together and elect uh, Scalise or somebody who gets 217 votes uh, and and becomes the um, and becomes the speaker. That would be outcome number one. Outcome number two, it would be somebody that we're not discussing right now. I know you have a feeling on that. And and outcome number three could be working with the Republicans. What's mo- I mean, working with the Democrats and 
essentially having a compromise speaker. What do you see being the ultimate outcome? Well, I, I, first of all, there's no plan. I'm quite confident of that at this point. There's, there's no master plan being driven here. Um, you know, and, the, and that's the other thing about this intra-party stuff is there's usually, you know, the smart folks have a plan and they're doing it for the advantage of their partisan, you know, philosophy. Uh, <clears throat> that's obviously not the case. So my guess is that they're going to give a, a real effort over the next 24, 48, 72 hours through the weekend uh, to see if they can put 217 votes together for somebody. And uh, if they if they can, they will. That, that's that would be the better option for Republicans at this stage. But it's entirely possible that they won't be able to do that. So then you've got you know, two op two options. One is you just don't have a House of Representatives, which I don't think is going to happen. And the other is if you can't get to two seventeen with your own conference, then you've got to go across the aisle and figure it out. And You've got to figure it out with the Democrats. Now, the Democrats want to, to elect uh, Hakeem Jeffries as speaker. That's not going to happen. Uh, but I do think there can be some, some negotiation on rules, on things that can make it to the floor, on amendments that can be offered, uh, that some of those kind of concessions to the minority uh, party that could get enough Democrats on board to elect somebody as speaker. Now, you're not going to get... Uh, a lightning rod Republican uh, is not going to get that those Democrat votes. And I don't think the Republicans would put up some liberal who's out of step with where the party is. So you're going to have to find a, a conservative Republican member, likely. It doesn't have to be a member, but likely, uh, that uh, is acceptable to the majority of the Republican conference and is acceptable to enough Democrats to, to make this work. I think think that is probably the more likely outcome of this thing at this well, point. One of the th arguments you hear on regular media, I don't watch Fox, so I don't know what the conversation is, but on the rest of the media is, is that Democrats have a responsibility to help solve this. Number one, do you feel like they do? I mean, if this was, if the shoe were on the other foot, yeah, no, the I Republicans mean, would be doing the same thing. Sure. The politics are clear. And I mean, yes, there, there's zero incentive politically for the Democrats to do that. However, this really is a significant time. If, if, if we were in a, you know, peace and relative prosperity and things were rolling along yeah. and, and you had this kind of dysfunction in the House of Representatives, it, you know. Okay. The politics would be but, more important than I think they are ultimately here. So if the Democrats have all, have the gold, and it seems like it's only going to be the only way that it gets solved, you but rightfully so said, well, Hakeem Jeffries is never going to be speaker. Right. Why not? It's only four votes. If you can hold your you, you can hold your caucus together, there aren't, there and aren't. maybe there'll get be four or five disgusted Republicans. Maybe that's what ultimately needs to happen here is to there be the consequences no. to these shenanigans. That's just not going to happen. I mean, how, how, why do you say that? There aren't five Republicans who want anything to do with Hakeem Jeffries. Oh, and, uh, but there's got to be five Republicans who are like fed up with the fact that their oh, party clearly. is, a, a, yes. you know, a, a dozens, headless animal. Dozens of Republicans that are fed up. With so the even way. if it's not Hakeem Jeffries, why should the Democrats go and compromise? Why shouldn't the Democrats just say, hey, give us four votes and we'll find a moderate that you can be behind? It's not, that's not going to happen. I just don't believe that. I mean, I, I, I understand what you're saying, uh, but 
I don't know. It seems like the Democrats are in the catbird seat here. Well, they certainly are, uh, and and they, you know, they they're going to exact some concessions from the majority. There's no question. But something like electing a Democratic speaker is not among them. Well, that's it. We're going to step aside. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, Israel, the growing conflict there. uh, And uh, we're going to visit with Jeff McCausland. Full day here with Hancock and Kelly taking you all the way to 11 o'clock right here on CAMWAX. Now, back to Hancock and Kelly, sponsored by Insperity, HR that makes a difference on News Radio 1120, KMOX. All right, go with me here for a second, pal. But um, what I may say may sound a bit naive or Pollyannish, and I don't mean it in that sense. I'm going to share what I honestly think. One of the things that is mind blowing to me. Uh, still to this day. Now, I've studied history. You know, I understand the Holocaust. I understand um, what we've done. I just don't get the whole concept of hatred that exists in our society right now. I I just, I don't know. Have we not evolved past this? I mean, uh, obviously, you know, so many people buried their heads during World War II yeah. when six million human beings were exterminated. Yep. Uh, and it's still impossible for my brain to wrap around the idea of that type of hatred uh, being in existence. That now, with the benefit of the history of that in front of us, I just, I, I, I don't know. I just still am so blown away that people have this type of hatred inside their hearts for other individuals, whether it be Jews or Africans or uh, Latinos or, you know, Irish, whatever the, the hatred may be. It just, I don't know. Haven't we, don't we have enough information now where people see that we all have a heart and a brain and I know I sound silly and Pollyannish, but it's it's so hard for me to get. It well, really is. I, this type of hatred. Well, let me see if I can help here. All right. There is evil in the world. Sure. And there has been evil in the world from the beginning of the world. Uh, not everyone is equally evil, but no one among us is perfect. And so somewhere along the spectrum of utterly despicably evil and pretty darn good person is where all of us reside. And those, those attitudes of hate, whether it be anti-Semitism or racial prejudice, uh, there are still large swaths of people in the world who hold fast to those things. Now, as it relates to what's going on in Israel, uh, you go back to the Bible when the Israelites left Egypt, where they had been enslaved, uh, and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and then claimed their land. And they claimed their land by, you know, warfare, wiping out uh, the, the folks that were inhabiting that land at the time. Uh, if you happen to be a, a faithful Jew or Christian, you understand that those are God's people and that God had appointed them to have that land. Uh, but there were bloody conflicts thousands of years ago uh, that created what is today Israel. Israel had was 12 different tribes. Uh, eventually the kingdom divided 11 tribes of Israel and then the tribe of Judah. But they, from its very inception there in the Middle East around Jerusalem and what is today Tel Aviv, 
there had been violent confrontations. And those violent confrontations continued. And eventually the Jews were decimated and dispersed throughout the world. They had no homeland for very, very, very many years. And after World War II, the nations that won that war got together and they decided that they were going to create a homeland for the Jewish people on their historic ancestral land. There were Arabs living there among them. Arabs and Jews have been fighting for thousands of years, and that continues. And there are intense feelings on both sides of that equation. What's different today is that you've had now decades of organized terrorists uh, who have, with increasingly uh, increasing ability and training, uh, gotten progressively worse, and they just pulled off one of the worst terrorist attacks in the history right. of mankind last weekend, and not just in the history of the Middle East. This is one of the worst, arguably the worst in terms of scale uh, of any terrorist attack we've ever seen. And uh, the only thing that really could rival it is 9-11. I, yeah, I, well, there's three major religions in the world, right? Christianity, Judaism, and and Muslim. Well, the Hindus would argue. And the Hindus, yeah. I mean, there's, the, what I, it's hard for me, and I, I'm speaking from a person who I consider myself to be Catholic, uh, Christian. You identify as a Catholic. Yeah, but I've I've evolved a bit on religion, uh-huh. and what what it comes down to me from a, you know an objective standpoint is that I don't know. Here's three religions who each have their own story on how all this started, um, and. You know, I can poke holes inside my own uh, belief systems argument mm-hmm. um, that that to be able to look at somebody else's with absolutism. I mean, I just don't. It is it, the maybe the further I get away from the the theological and the religious rigidality of beliefs, the more I realize. Hey, your story of how this all started, my story of how all this started, and this is why we hate each other, is stories that were written thousands of years ago by others. Now, I get that there's an argument that this is the word of God and, you know. Well, here's what's, here's what's inarguable uh, for many folks. The faith is the very core of their existence. And so you can, you can strip faith out and say that, you know, we should all get along and we should all get along. But you can't de-emphasize the tremendous and profound effect religion has uh, on all of these conflicts all over the world. I mean, it just does. And um, you can't wish it were otherwise because it's not. I mean, that's the reality. Right. But these are all documents that come with ideas of control, right? I mean, essentially, if you really read all of the scriptures, it's it's a way of living life as a result of of these, and I just don't, I don't, I, I still to this day have a hard time grasping where all this hatred comes from, to the point of being able to go kill others. I know I sound silly, but it it just, 
it's well, it's not something I can relate yeah, with. Thankfully, well, thankfully, that's right. We don't have those impulses. We don't have those attitudes. We don't share those beliefs. Uh, but there's plenty of people that have them. Yeah. Well, there's wars being fought over it. Exactly. We're going to get an update on those wars. We're going to visit with Jeff McCausland. You heard some stories about him earlier when we were talking to Debbie. Uh, he was here eating some crown candy food. So we'll <laughs> maybe visit with him about great meals in St. Louis, but more importantly, these great conflicts that are taking place in our world right after this on KMOX. What defines us is who we are as a collective group and, and uh, how we progress and gain momentum through the season. The Coach's Corner with St. Louis City Coach Bradley Carnell. Mondays at 935 on America's Sports Voice, KMOX. You are listening to The Voice of St. Louis, KMOX. You can hear us on 1120 AM and 98.7 FM right here. And if you uh, were, are listening to us, you go to the we, you know that we have the Quiver River Electric Guest Line, where we're joined now by Colonel Jeff McCausland, CBS News military analyst. Colonel, how are you, sir? Well. Oh, no colonel? No colonel. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna find the colonel. Yeah, we'll do our best to find Colonel. Sometimes McCall, it's hard man. to find the colonel in a big vat of corn. Yeah, no got no doubt about yeah, it. Yeah, you just never know. But I'm I'm really uh, excited to talk with Colonel McCausland. He's very, I mean, he knows as much. He's been a member of the National Security Council. Uh, he knows as much about this stuff as anybody, and uh, right. so hopefully our technical well, issue will be resolved. Yeah, and talk about, uh, you know... How about I get over and work on that equipment, Michael? You know, there's nobody that uh, knows the ins and out of technical equipment better than better than myself. So, ah, it looks like... Here we go. Now, back on the Quiver River Electric Guest Line, we're joined by Colonel Jeff McCausland. And good, good morning, Colonel. Good morning to you, sir. Uh, boy, we, we've been talking to you so much about Ukraine and Russia, and we're going to get into that in a minute, but uh, we're less than a week after this horrible terrorist attack uh, that's taken place in Israel. It sure likes we're gearing up for what could be uh, a long and protracted war in the Middle East. Yeah, I fear so. I mean, there's supposedly a saying amongst Jewish people in the past that things will get worse and then they'll get worse. And I fear that's where we may be at today. As we look back on the last few days, right now we know that about 1,200 Israelis have been killed in the fighting since it began last Saturday. Probably over 1,400 Palestinians have been killed as well. For the Israelis, one has to think about that, I think, in proportional terms. And, and that is Israel, a relatively small country, only about 10 million people. So 12 million Israelis being killed by a terrorist organization on their soil would be the equivalent of about 25 or 30,000 Americans being killed on American soil. Uh, in a period of less than a week. Yeah, it is. Uh, there's there's so many so many aspects to this thing. I want to start here on on the intel. So when when those four planes in on nine eleven were commandeered by a handful of terrorists, uh, they were able to train and execute relatively stealthily. What we saw last Saturday was a force of hundreds, if not thousands of Hamas terrorists who had been clearly well-trained. They had a, a clear plan of action. They knew what they were going to do when they got there. And how was that missed by both Israeli intelligence and U.S. intelligence? Those, those troops had to be training somewhere. They had to be getting instruction somewhere. And yet we just missed it. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, this is the greatest intelligence failure for the Israelis, certain, certainly since uh, almost exactly 50 years ago on the Yom Kippur War, where the Egyptians surprised the Israelis by making an amphibious assault across the Suez Canal and advancing into Sinai, followed by attacks by Jordan and Syria. But, you know, if you go back to 9-11, you may have an inkling, and that is in the executive summary report on the 9-11 Commission, they have a phrase that I always recall, and that is that fundamentally this was a failure of imagination on 9-11. I would say for the Israelis, this was a failure of imagination. I've spent a lot of time in Israel, spent time with the Israeli military. I can tell you, in dealing with Gaza, and this is the fifth war they fought in the Gaza Strip since 2009, as I recall, they would frequently use the phrase, mowing the grass, mowing the grass. But periodically, we have to mow the grass. In other words, every few years, there'll be a, a, a war or a skirmish with Hamas. We'll, we'll beat up on them. They'll go back into the Gaza Strip. Things will quiet down. And two years later, you got to mow, mow the grass. Uh, that's a sort of a level of self-assurance, uh, gratuitousness uh, that can cause you, I think, to miss things. And I think that's what happened. We can control Hamas. They're controllable. Uh, and meanwhile, of course, Israel has been convulsed by great social unrest for the last year uh, over efforts by the government to change laws with respect to the judiciary. We also see this new, uh, very extreme, most right-wing government in Israeli history coming into office and an expansion of fighting between the Israeli Defense Forces and Palestinian militant groups on the West Bank. Over 200 Palestinians were killed uh, in the last six months, even prior to this war beginning. So I think the combination of those things allowed the Israelis to take their eye off the ball and therefore have a failure of imagination. They couldn't imagine that Hamas could pull this off. And on the other side, in military terms, you have to give, as you suggest, I think Hamas great credit for organizing the first that I know, joint and combined terrorist operation. That is, they used air, land, and sea for this operation, literally thousands of fighters, and did so under a cloak of secrecy that surprised the Israelis tactically, operationally, and strategically. Yeah, it's, um, you know, stunning, uh, to say the least. Uh, so uh, Israel's army is amassing at Gaza. Uh, they're, they're dropping leaflets and encouraging uh, nonviolent folks to get out of there to go to the south. I don't know how that's going to happen. But we have to assume that at some point in the near future, there's going to be a ground invasion into Gaza that's going to be very bloody uh, and very difficult. I mean, that seems to be a given. But my question is this. Hamas is one thing. You've got Hezbollah to the north right. up in Lebanon. They're already involved now in this thing. Uh, what are the prospects for escalation? Are we looking at possibly a Syrian involvement or Iran getting directly publicly engaged in this thing? Uh, is that is that the chief concern at this point? Let's take this in two parts. Let's talk a little bit about Gaza and then the escalation. Consider the fact that the Gaza Strip is 140 square miles. It's probably smaller than the metropolitan St. Louis, for example. Uh, put 2.2 million people in that particular area which translates to 13,000 people per square mile. And now conduct a ground operation, which you have to go door to door, apartment to apartment, room to room, basement to basement uh, in this particular fighting. This negates a lot of your advantages, heavy armor, mechanized vehicles. You've conducted a, a preparatory uh, massive air campaign, so every, everything's rubbled to begin with. So this is going to be an enormously bloody affair. Yeah, the Israelis have called for 1.1 million Gazans to flee flee where? They can't flee into Israel. Those borders are closed. 
they can go south. But again, can you imagine how those roads in an area that small are going to be crammed if all those people just try to move in, in 24 hours? Uh, and furthermore, they can't move into Egypt because the Egyptians have controlled the border. Frankly, the only open place they have is to go in the Mediterranean. That's about it. So that's going to be unlikely. So that's the nature of that operation. Escalation, enormous danger and enormous worry of the Israelis. Does that ground incursion trigger that response by Hezbollah that you suggest? Hezbollah, a far more sophisticated military organization. I've been up on the northern border of uh, Israel with uh, Lebanon on a couple of occasions. Tens of thousands, if not more, rockets and missiles all pointed at Israel ready to be launched. We have already seen, as you suggested, some artillery and mortar exchanges between Hezbollah uh, and the Israelis. That might ignite as well. There's also, though not talked about a lot, expanded fighting on the West Bank between Israeli defense forces and Palestinian militant groups operating there. And then finally, overnight, not getting a lot of press, uh, the Israelis bombed two Syrian airfields in Damascus and Aleppo. Now, why would they do that in the middle of this particular conflict? Well, one thing, to slow the flow of ammunition and supplies that Iran uh, provides to these various groups operating out of Syria and, and smuggled into the West Bank and going to Hamas. Darn. I hate that. I know. We lost him. We just lost him. That uh, was uh, Colonel Jeff McCausland, CBS was, News, Military was, News uh, Analyst. That was unfortunate because he, he was... We were all of us were learning something. Yeah, absolutely. I do. I do have a real concern uh, over the escalation of this well, thing. I also want to know. I mean, look, we've moved the carrier group, uh, what Gerald Ford, right off the coast of Israel, um, and uh, of course, our weapons are there, and not only in Israel, but we have weapons in most of those surrounding countries as well. Um, and, you know, what role, if any, will the United States be playing? Obviously, this is an Israeli offensive, but right. are we there just if someone else were to hop into the fight, or will we be playing a logistical role well, in helping I think the Israelis? That, I think the Ford, <coughs> Ford is there yes. as, a, as a deterrent uh, primarily let's, at let's, this point. Let's go back to the Quiver River guest line. Uh, Colonel, uh, one of the things that uh, I was just positing the question to you um, – Obviously, the United States has the Gerald Ford right off of the, right. the aircraft carrier. Most of our weapons and are, are in all of those countries. What role, well, are, if any, will the United States play in this offensive? Are we there just in case somebody else jumps into the fight, or will we be playing some type of a role in the assault on, on Hamas? Well, I think what we're doing, first of all, you're right. The Gerald Ford is offshore with its support ships. That is there for a number of reasons. One is to deter send a message to Hezbollah, Iran, et cetera, that you don't want to get involved in this, really. Um, it's number two, there to assist in the evacuation of Americans if this should get more severe. We're already seeing the beginning of an evacuation of Americans out of Israel. Might have to do the same from Lebanon. Thirdly, in terms of assistance directly to the Israelis, I'm sure the command and control systems aboard those ships may provide an intelligence to Israel about incoming missile strikes, monitor the coastline for maritime incursions to provide them additional, perhaps, support in the area of intelligence, communications, and command and control. The United States has also sent additional fighter aircraft to the Middle East, most notably to the Gulf, as a deterrent as well, I think, further to Iran. That this particular moment is not the time that you want Shiite groups you back in Iraq to attack American facilities in Iraq or elsewhere, in Syria, and likewise. So we're playing, I think, a real deterrent role. 
And then finally, of course, is the resupply role of munitions. We have about six storage areas uh, on Israeli territory with about $2 billion worth of munitions uh, pre-positioned for our use in case of a large-scale Middle East contingency, but also available to be provided to the Israelis as needed in a crisis like we have now. And we know some initial uh, U.S. Uh, resupply of precision missiles has already arrived. But our problem in providing additional supplies and additional military aid to Israel, frankly, is hamstrung right now by the fact that we don't have an operational United States Congress until we can find a Speaker of the House, because the Congress has to take action to vote funding for increased military assistance to anybody. So oddly, our internal political domestic weaknesses are hamstringing some of our foreign policy during a moment of great crisis. Well, there's no question about that. Uh, Colonel Jeff McCausland, retired uh, CBS News military analyst, joins us. Time is short, unfortunately, Colonel. Uh, I did want to ask this. And I, the the fund the ongoing funding of the Ukrainian sovereignty uh, is has become an issue. I don't want to deal with that. I I think I hope the United States keeps its commitment to Ukraine. They continue to fight the the Russians on Ukrainian soil and drive them out. Although I think it's going to take some time. But my question is this: I'm concerned um, that the same sides are on the same sides in both of these conflicts. In other words, the West is on the side of Israel and the side of Ukraine. Uh, the Russians, the Iranians, heck, the South, the North Koreans, for that matter, are on the side of the Russians and seemingly Hamas. Uh, is that a concern with both of these conflicts happening simultaneously? Well, it's certainly a concern, and one of the things you've seen already, of course, is in the news, and any, any talk of Ukraine has sort of disappeared, and the Ukrainians are very worried what this means for longer-term military assistance, without a doubt. That being said, and I'm sure Vladimir Putin went to bed last night, uh, in the last couple of nights, a pretty happy man, because it, this is all suggesting to him what he had believed all along, that the willpower of the West was not sustainable, would not sustain over time. His willpower was stronger than ours. And he could kind of wait us out in Ukraine. And by what Hamas has done with Israel, he believes, I think, just has accelerated that particular plot process. But I think it's a step beyond that to say there's, you know, some kind of massive conspiracy or complicity that the Russians were colluding formally with Hamas and Iran to orchestrate this particular attack. I think that's a little bit, a little bit beyond the pale for the moment, at least. But there's no doubt about it. Russians are benefiting from this in this particular moment. He is Colonel Jeff McCausland, CBS News military analyst, retired United States colonel. Uh, colonel, thank you so much for taking the time here on KMOX. Always a pleasure, guys. What an insightful dude he is, John Hancock. Hey, when we come back, we'll talk about uh, a conflict that took place on the other side of the state uh, that had some star power added after this on KMOX. KMOX, the 2023 Large Market Radio Station of the Year. Recognized by the Missouri Broadcasters Association. KMOX, we were built for this. Well, you heard it last night right here on KMOX. Our, uh, the Kansas City Chiefs wound up beating uh, Russell Wilson and the Denver Broncos. It's a boring game. What you may not have known was that uh, Taylor Swift was there. Didn't get much attention. It's getting less and less attention. Oh, she's up there. As it's going on. But there she was sitting with Mama Kelsey to get the ball game again last night. Well, you've taken her home to meet the folks. That's usually a sign that things are turning a little serious here. And 
you know, I find what I find fascinating about this, Michael. <laughs> yeah. So Travis Kelsey, I imagine he's got a pretty good contract. He's probably making what, yeah. twelve, fourteen million dollars sure. a year. Right. Maybe. He's making real money. He's making good money. Yeah. He's probably got a very nice house over there. Uh, probably uh-huh. on the Kansas side of the right, board. right. And uh, he's probably got a three, four million dollar house over there. Uh-huh. Nice big place, you know, fifteen thousand square feet, something like that. Fine china, the whole. Oh you know, yeah, yeah, nice furniture. Uh-huh. And uh, and so here he is. He's dating. Uh, Taylor Swift. I'm sure by now uh, he's calling her Tay Tay. Tay Tay. Hey Tay Tay. So they, they get together after the game last night. The Kansas City Chiefs have won, and he goes and he finds her and he picks her up and they're walking on, out of the back end into the stadium. He says, "Hey Tay Tay, why don't you come over to my place tonight? I uh-huh. got a nice bottle of Dom Perignon. We oh, can enjoy together. The Dom." And Tay Tay says. Oh, Travi, I would love to. <laughs> and Tay-Tay and Travi, they, they get in the in the car. Now, Tay-Tay's got her security detail. Yeah. She's got, she's got more security than he's got than, teammates. Than the president. <laughs> and uh, so they're they're following along behind. And, uh-huh. uh, and, and Travi and Tay-Tay, they pull up into his driveway. Uh-huh. And I he, can't imagine another member of the National Football League who would be dating a woman for whom his house is a dump. <laughs> <laughs> because she's, she said, oh, this is a nice little place you've got oh, here, This Travi. is great. Uh, now, what part do you stay in? You're right. <laughs> <laughs> is, this the, is this the service entrance? Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder if uh, I wonder if Travi has been to Tay-Tay's house, wherever that may be. I guess she's got a place in Nashville. Nashville. Yeah, she's yeah. got to be in Nashville, yeah. right? Yeah. But she's probably got places around the world. Now, she just opened her concert uh, in L.A. earlier this week. So she was rubbing elbows with this. So maybe on her way back from the left coast, she yeah. she hops off in Kansas City. Like she yeah. said, she goes slumming it. Well, she's got her Probably own. Probably in Overland Park somewhere. I'm sure she's got her own jet, right? Yeah. I mean, Tay-Tay's oh, yeah. got her. Tay-Tay, yeah. And uh, so, so Travi's mom goes and picks her up at the at the airport. Yeah, picks her Probably up. lands at downtown airport there in Kansas City. You don't City. think uh, Taylor Swift grabs an Uber? No. She don't think she just pushes the button? No, no. She's no. got people, man. And uh, she's got people are meeting her. But I'm, I'm sure Mrs. Kelsey was showed up. Because they're the fast friends of two of these, uh, Tay-Tay and, and Mrs. Kelsey. Well, yeah. well I'd, I'd be fast friends as well, wouldn't you? Yeah. So your mom signs off on your date. That's a big step, uh, you know. And if the mom says, you know what, this may be the one. Do you Travis. think the mom's like, now, what is it that you do, honey? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, you're, you're a, a musician, singer. huh? Are you oh. able to afford to pay for your rent with that, sweetheart? <laughs> Can't you hear it? Yeah. Right? Yeah, she's doing all right, oh, though. Oh, sure, Take you're that. a singer. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, man. So I don't know. That was my that was my thought. Is that uh, Travis? She was she was slumming it last night. I, uh, yeah, I out think you'd be right. Place. She probably leaving sometime this morning. Tay Tay, I like that name. Tay Tay and yeah. Tra- Travi. Travi and Tay Tay. Travi. Uh, yeah. The wedding the wedding invitations are going to be great uh, for this thing. They're going to look. They're going to. And I predict. Let's mark the tape, Michael. Oh, this ought to be good. I'm predicting that this time a year from now there will be an engagement nope. announcement <clears throat> between. Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. No, no, the Swifties will never tolerate it. Really? You know, no. I think she's destined to be a lot like me. You know, she's just an independent human who, 
you know, know. loves the, the love and companionship the of lipstick others. Going. But uh, she's got the lipstick. You don't going. like that it's red a, lipstick, do I, you? You know, I think you could do better than that, but that's just me. He is John Hancock. I'm Michael Kelly. We want to you thank are. you for joining us. We're going to stick around for an hour we with Amy think, uh, and, yeah, um, and uh, what's his name, uh, Raj. Raj. And we want to thank James O'Sullivan on the board, Frank Ladd, producing another excellent program today. Yeah, we will be back with you right after this and the news on KMOX.